Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 71 of my 60 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 71 of my Sixty Music Podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge sexy music fan slash expert slash nerd, and uh, each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show in two parts. Uh, first part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics, and then in the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians on the track, whether it be the band members or the session musicians on the track, um, what studio the song was recorded at, and where that studio was located at, and uh, what label the song was released on, where that label was located at, and the peak position the song made made up originally on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and the year and month it was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we on this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to let you guys know a few things. I have some really cool updates for you. Um, first thing I want to update you guys on is that I went to another 60s show uh, on Friday, and let me tell you something, that show was absolutely amazing, and I'm going to tell you why right now. Um, what was so cool about the show was that when I was there, right, I was kind of expecting, you know, more of an older crowd because, you know, this guy who I was seeing, you know, he was from the 60s, you know, so I was expecting more people my parents' age to be there, but man... I was so happy and just so pleasantly surprised to see that 90% of the people that were there for the show, who I was going to see, who was artists I was going to see. Who, by the way, I've done him on my podcast before. He's phenomenal. He's one of the best R&B soul singers from the 60s. He's so underrated, and he's just amazing, and I love him. His name's Brenton Ward. I saw him last Friday in, in a venue down Long Beach in Los Angeles, California, and man, you know, I was just so happy to see that 90% of the people there were all people around my age. And they were just, and not only that, not only were they were there, there most, most of the people there were people my age, but they were loving his songs. They, they knew the words to almost every single one of his songs, and they were singing along to almost all of them. And I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. I was like, holy shit. I was like, wow. I mean, it was just in- incredible because literally, I mean, it was the same group of people you would see at like a Jonas Brothers or a, uh, you know, Ed Sheeran concert, except it was this older guy from the 60s, you know. Um, and it was just so cool because they they could tell they were huge fans of his music. They loved his stuff. And that just, that's proof enough for you. If you're one of those people who's kind of skeptical about older music and think that it's o- only people in you know from the baby boomer generation can love it well guess what you know you're wrong because i just went to a 60s show last weekend and 90 percent of the people there were people my age and they were loving 
you know, this guy's music and they were singing along to all of his songs. And that is proof enough for you right there that this music that was a, was around 50 years ago can still be relevant, still be relatable. And people my age, in my age group, and I'm 23, by the way, can love this music just as much as the people back then, you know, who are baby boomers who are alive in the 50s and 60s. So that, that and that's just proof enough right there for you. So um, if you don't believe me, you can always go on my Instagram and go check out my latest highlight reel under Shows 11. You'll see the clips I took of that show last night, and you'll know that most of the people in the audience were people in my age group. They weren't, and they were singing along to all of his songs. But yeah, so um, a further note, I wanted to let you guys know, and by the way, I got to meet him too, and I got to talk with him about his music, and he was a very humble, very nice guy. And I, you know, actually, I told him what name of the studio the song was, was songs were recorded at, and he reaffirming told me yes, I was correct, and that was really cool. And he actually gave me the names of musicians on his record, so that was awesome as well. Um, but yeah, so um, the other thing I wanted to say is that um, some of you out there might think that since this music is so so much time has passed since this music was originally recorded and released, some of you out there might wonder if. Uh, if there's any new artists today that uh, write and record music that is uh, similar to you know the music from back from that time period or has echoes of it, but it's brand new. Well, guess what? Um, there's quite a few of them out there, but one that really stuck out to me is a guy named Eli Paperboy Reed. Um, Eli Paperboy Reed was someone I listened to when I was like 14, 15, back in 2010, 2011, and I was like blown away by how good he was, first of all, and just how much of that 60s retro throwback soul sound he had with his music. And about 10 years later, um, you know, I listened to his, I mean, more like eight or nine years, but anyways, um, about nine years later, I listened to his newest album, and I was kind of nervous because I was I was I wasn't sure if he still had that '60s retro throwback sound. Because a lot of new artists today, you know, the stuff they put out like you know eight or nine years ago, you know, if they were doing music back then, they were huge. A lot of times, they go through a lot of evolutions, and they don't always stick to that old school sound. I mean, they always go through a lot of changes, especially within that period of time, but. I was so happy when I listened to this uh, new album that he put out that he still had that retro throwback 60s sound. And I was like, oh, my God, it was just amazing because, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the album came out in 2019, but almost all the songs in there could have been released like in 1966 or 65 or 64. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, so one of these days I might actually do a song by him. You know, just to show you guys that there's still people out there today that are not old that are doing music that is very much influenced and very much still has the vibe and the spirit and the arrangements and the production of a lot of those 60s songs, except they're brand new songs that came out just recently. So anyways, I'm going to do a song by him one of these days and uh, I'll, I'll get on to this week's episode of the podcast, but I just want to touch base with you guys on all those things because um, they're all new things that happened to me this week. So uh, let's get on with this week's show. But again, let's get into the history behind this band's Deathwall because 
This is a band that you probably know of because of this particular song, but I bet you probably don't know much about their history. But first, before we get into their history, we have to look at exactly where popular music was at at the time when this band became popular. Okay, so let's backtrack for a little bit and let's talk about, you know, just general music history for a minute. Okay, so for the very first half of the 60s, from the early to mid into the mid-60s, the format that 90% of the kids used to listen to their favorite hit songs at that moment was AM radio. Um, people would tune into their favorite AM radio stations at all hours of the day and listen to, as their favorite songs would climb the charts on each station's individual survey charts and hear as new songs were getting added to the survey charts each week. And also, AM radio stations also had very strong uh, personalities as far as the DJs were concerned. And many of the DJs became, some, some, a lot of times, people looked up to these DJs. And the DJs for these AM uh, radio stations became, you know, were basically, you know, a lot of people idolized them, you know. So they definitely had very strong personalities and they definitely had... You know, a lot of people kind of looked up to them a lot, you know, and they and, you know, a lot of times these DJs became like local celebrities, like people like celebrities that were famous within their hometown. And, uh, you know, each each specific city had their own individual AM radio stations. But for the most part, most of those survey charts followed followed the Billboard Hot 100 and were utilizing a lot of the same metrics as far as, you know, radio airplay uh, was concerned as far as judging whether or not songs would become hits or what, what, what peak position they would make up and when they would start climbing down or, you know, climbing up. But anyways, um, at the time, AM radio had strict rules about what kind of music could be on that platform, exactly how long the songs could be. And by the way, also, AM radio had a huge variety of songs. I mean, they had everything from country to rhythm and blues to, you know, to soul to pop, you know, to uh, middle of the road, adult contemporary, not to novelty songs. I mean, they had a wide variety of music on AM radio at that time. And songs that were heavier and darker in nature and songs that veered away from the standard first chorus, first chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, out format could not get played on AM radio. And for the most part, songs that were longer than three minutes could not get radio airplay on AM radio. I mean, there were some exceptions to this, but, you know, like, you know, Bob Dylan's like a Rolling Stone and Animal's House, The Rising Sun. But for the most part, a lot of the songs that were under over three minutes, you know, could not get played on AM radio. And uh, songs that were too avant-garde and too weird, honestly, could not get played on AM radio. And I know I have talked about this on my podcast before. But the reason as to why I'm mentioning it again is because for a very long time, there was only one real format for people to listen to mainstream music, and that was AM radio. But when the 60s evolved from the early to mid-60s into the late 60s, in came in this brand new format which broke so many rules as far as the music industry concerned, and that format was known as FM radio. I mean, not only did FM radio had a much clearer signal than AM radio, and, you know, the music, you know, that they play in FM radio was a lot better sounding quality-wise than AM radio, um, but when it came out officially and publicly, um, you know, FM radio, gone were the rules of songs having to be under three minutes, and gone were the rules of that songs had to be of a certain cookie-cutter, innocent way of just squeaky-clean love songs, no references to drug or drugs or sex. And gone were the rules of only, you know, DJs only having to play 
uh, songs that were, you know, A-sides of 45 RPM singles. And for DJs not being able to play full-length LPs from start to finish, um, FM radio literally threw all those old cliche ADM RAM radio rules out the window and totally changed the game for the music industry in general. And all of a sudden, the record-buying public was starting to gravitate more towards FM radio when AM radio all of a sudden became lame and uncool. And by the way, this all happened like in 1967, 1968, more 68 and 69. But even though there were so many bands that were still trying to get their bread and butter airplay on AM radio um, at that time, but while we're at it, that leads me to mention how many bands that were in the late 60s who were not trying to alienate themselves by only sticking to the FM radio album rock format and were still trying to get their AM radio edited down 45 singles out there, like The Doors and Jefferson Airplane. And this leads me to introduce you to this band, Steppenwolf. They were essentially one of those hard rock bands from the late 60s that could take advantage of that FM radio album rock format but still pump out great sounding 45 singles tailored for AM radio. So in a sense, they stood on both sides of the fence. The AM radio side of the fence were groups like the Grassroots and Gary Puckett Union Gap and Paul Over and the Raiders stood on. And the FM radio album rock side of the fence in which groups like The Doors and Crosby, Zills and Nash and Joe Cocker stood on. And also, like a group I did a while ago on this podcast, The Guess Who, this band was also from Canada, and they did manage to have hits in America before The Guess Who, officially. I mean, yeah, The Guess Who had that top 40 hit in 65, but you know this band blew up before the people even knew really knew who The Guess Who was in America. But anyways, but the thing to remember about this band is that unlike The Guess Who, Steppenwolf did not stay in Canada. They essentially formed over there and then broke up, but when members of the first incarnation of the band moved to L.A., they were encouraged to reform the band in L.A., and then they basically became an L.A. band at that point. Whereas the guests who built everything from the ground up in Canada and didn't even go outside of there until the right opportunity came along for them to finally make it in America after being together for almost the entire decade of the 60s with only one real major American top 40 hit to their name. But anyways, getting back to this particular band, probably the most interesting thing about this band is the story of its lead singer, John Kay. John was born in Germany during the height of World War II when a lot of Germany was still being controlled by the Nazis. His dad was killed in Russia a month after he was born, and you know, and him and his mom escaped into West Germany, and it was there growing up in the 50s in post-war II Germany that was would sooner or later become communist-controlled part of Germany, by the way, where he heard a wide variety of rhythm and blues and pop music on AM radio. Once he heard, uh, you know, on well, a lot of these songs he heard on the U.S. Armed Forces radio stations. And at this time, he did not know how to speak English, but listening to these records where they all, all, all the DJs spoke English and all the songs were in English helped him develop him learning how to speak that language when he heard way more of that music when he and his mom uh, and his stepdad moved to Toronto, Canada in the late 50s in 1958. Um, you know, once he once he moved to Canada, there he got exposed to many different forms of pop and R&B as he had access to crystal clear AM radio stations from the U.S. And he also picked up some English, uh, you know, stations from, you know, that were actually from the U.S. 
and uh, DJ's speed talking through their on their programs. He actually through that he actually learned how to speak English from listening to this DJ's talk. But anyways, in 1965, Kay joined a band called The Sparrows with a Toronto-based keyboard player named Goldie McJohn and a drummer named Jerry Edmonton and a guitar player named Dennis Edmonton. By the way, we'll talk about more more about him in uh, the next uh, in in a, in a few minutes. But anyways. Um, the band did not have success outside of Canada, so in 1966, late 1967, John made his way to Los Angeles and met a guy named Gabriel Meekler, who had his own independent studio in Hollywood and was getting ready to move his facilities to Studio City. He suggested he, ref- we, he uh, John K. Ref- reform the band, and uh, you know, and basically, um, w- when it, when this happened. Uh, he was in, you know, he was in, uh, you know, the band that he was in Canada, he just suggested that he reform it, uh, as, uh, Gabriel Meekler had a connection with, uh, ABC Dunhill Records, which was Lou Adler's label. So when this happened, uh, John contacted two guys who were in the Sparrows with him when he was in Canada, Goldie McJohn and Jerry Edmonton, and told them about this, so they decided to move to L.A. and form this band with him along uh, along with, at the time, a 16-year-old guitar player named Michael Monarch and a bass player named Russian Marif. It was then that their producer also suggested they change their name to Steppenwolf based off of the Herman Hess novel of the same name. Now, um, before getting into the history behind Born to Be Well, let's talk about the studio that the song was recorded at. Um, because the song was recorded at an independent studio in Los Angeles called American Recorders in Studio City. Um, well, first it was in Hollywood. Um, because I know I really haven't dived in too much into the history of specific LA recording studios, but I might as well do that for this particular studio because all out of all the major studios in LA at that time, not a whole lot is known about American Recorders. Okay, so the studio was started out in Hollywood in 1959 and founded by a guy named Richard Podolor, who was a first-call session guitar player playing in L.A. uh, for people like artists such as Preston Epps and Sandy Nelson. Um, Richard Podolor founded the studio with a guy named Bill Cooper. And before it was in Studio City, it was first located uh, in Hollywood, actually. And uh, it was, I believe, it was located right, right in the Hollywood Palladium building, you know, which was the studio where the Lawrence Welk show, I believe, was taped at, and Lawrence Welk owned that building. And American American Recorders was actually one of the first independent studios in L.A. not tied to any record label. And songs that were recorded in the studio included "A Thousand Stars" by Kathy Young and the Innocents, and "Alley Oop" by the Hollywood Argyles. And, uh, yeah, so it was founded in 1959, and it was a part of the Hollywood Palladium building near Sunset and Vine, and also, I believe, near Sunset and Argyle, too. Um, but what made them decide to move out of the Hollywood Palladium building into somewhere else is that the guy who owned the building, who, by the way, his name was Lawrence Welk, told them that they were making too much noise, so they decided to leave that studio and open up a brand new studio in Studio City on the corner of Intern to Hunga. Um, and the head engineer and producer at the studio was a guy named Gabriel Meekler. And he worked with most of the ABC Dunhill and the acts that recorded out of the studio. 
And the first act he worked with, you know, uh, specifically from Dunhill, was Steppenwolf. And the next act he worked with as a producer with Richard Podolor and Bill Cooper Engineering, although Richard also acted as a producer on some things as well, was the band Three Dog Night. And also they worked with Blues Image too. At first, Steppenwolf tried to record at United Western Recorders on Sunset, but they were getting complaints about them playing way too loud. So they walked out of that studio and went into American Recorders in Studio City, who had a better understanding of the, of the band's very high volume of playing. Now, this is a fair warning. The next few pieces of information about the recording session for Born to Be Wild are, are going to consist of technical talk about the song's recording as far as the equipment and studio uh, they, they record the song in. And uh, if anybody doesn't understand what I'm talking about, and isn't as interested about this in, in this information I'm about to talk about, then you can feel free to skip through this section of this episode if you would like to. Um, because I understand that not everybody that listens to this podcast is a musician and engineer. So if I get like too technical about, let's say, like the theory or the, the engineering aspects of these records, then then I you know I I um you know I get I get that you might not be as interested in that specific uh, part of, you know, the songs and you want to hear more of the trivia information. So, um, but if you want to hear more about the technical part of it, like the theory and the engineering part of aspect of a lot of these songs, please let me know. But anyways, getting back to the American Recorder studio, um, the studio had a pair of, of LA-2A compressors brought, bought for them from Bill Putman, who at the time, who was about to open up his own studio in L.A., after spending many years at his studio in Chicago, known as Universal Recording Studios. And by the way, the name of that studio was United Western Recorders, um, the one he would open up. But anyways, the band used a Scully 8-track recorder to record Born to be Wild. Um, the mics that were used in the instruments included a Shure 5566 mic and a Cycron, actually a Synchron, ST microphones. So those are the mics they were using. The Shure 556 mics and the Synchron ST mics. Those were the ones used on the instruments. They were also the first ever band to isolate the kick drum on a drum kit and just, you know, mic it and just, you know, dedicate an individual specific track for the kick drum. And they used Fender Dual Showman amps in the studio, um, Michael Marnark, and I um, at least used a Fender Dual Showman amp in on the recording of the song and he had the volume knob turned all the way up to 10 and the mic used on john's vocal john k the lead singer of the band was a sony c37 and the band encouraged john to use his gravel on his voice to emphasize his heavy rock tones and by the way the musicians on board and be wild were jerry edmondson on drums russian marie von bass and Michael Monarch on guitar, and Goldie McJohn on organ, and John K. on lead vocals. And the organ they used on board to be wild was not a Hammond B3 organ with a Leslie speaker cranked all the way up, but it was actually a Lowry organ. And also, one important thing to mention about this particular song before we move on with any, with any specific recording techniques used on this track is that the label that the band was signed to did not think that this song, Born to be Wild, was their one and only bona fide hit single. In fact, Born to be Wild wasn't even the first single they ever even put out. John Kay has said himself in, in the past that nobody was expecting Born to be Wild to become such a huge, iconic hit song. The band had put out two singles before Born to be Wild, Suki Suki and The Pusher. 
But when those singles bombed, probably because it was hard for DJs to distinguish whether or not they were a white or black band. And a lot of people, and honestly, John Kay has also said that he thought that Suki Suki probably thought was just, they, the, a lot of people thought that the song, that song was too suggestive. It was then that their third single, Born to Be Wild, was starting to pick up speed after Suki Suki and The Pusher, and it became their first ever hit as a band. But anyways, getting back to the production of the song, and we'll get into the more of a story behind how the song was written in a second. Just just hang on tight for a minute. Okay, so um, before I wrap up this podcast, one the, these are some things I want to say about Born to Be Wild. Um, the song was originally mixed down at Ampex 350S tape machines and uh, in the studio, American Recorders. And the guy who wrote this song, who, by the way, was the brother of the drummer of the band, Dennis Edmonton, who was also going under the alias of Mon- Mars Bonfire at that time. And also, um, Dennis Edmonton was the original guitar player for the Sparrows when their group was originally formed in Canada. Um, when it was Goldie McJohn and Jerry Edmonton and his brother Dennis Edmonton on guitar, you know, um, you know that that was the original band, but then they broke up, and then they got uh, Michael Monarch to replace uh, Dennis Edmonton on guitar. Um, but anyways, when the band reformed in uh, in Los Angeles, uh, anyways, so um, Dennis Edmonton, uh, the brother of Jerry Edmonton, was inspired by the trips he would make to the Redwoods in California using his Ford Falcon car. Uh, you know, when he, when he, he, that's, that's what inspired him to write Born to be Wild. Then he saw a poster in Hollywood of a dude riding his motorcycle in front of an erupting volcano that said Born to Ride. And the initial idea he had of having the freedom of having his own car, being able to go wherever he wanted to go, inspired him to write Born to be Wild. And he also originally got the idea from line Heavy Metal Thunder from the thunder thunderous rainstorms he encountered on his trips to the redwoods in california and remember and he remember learning uh, learning about the periodic table of elements when he was in chemistry class in school and when he was trying to conjure up the words to describe the environment he was in during the thunderous rainstorm was rain was coming down and then you know i mean you know, there was such a picturesque kind of environment he was in he you know he actually he came up with the idea of hey why don't we just say I like smoke and lightning, heavy metal thunder. The lyrics for the song were actually written chronologically, you know, and they were based off of his trips that he would make, you know, in California into the woods. And initially, he originally recorded the song as an acoustic song, and his publisher initially rejected the song until John K. of Stepping Wolf got a hold of it and recorded it because the publishers didn't think the song was going to be a hit. They rejected the song originally, and it wasn't until John K. listened to it and saw the potential of it and uh, ultimately wound up recording it with Steppenwolf. Um, and by the way, after the song became a hit, it was forever immortalized in the movie Easy Rider. And actually, the guy who wrote Born to Be Wild, the first time he ever heard that song on the radio in the summertime of 1968, late summer, uh, you know, or, uh, sorry, late summer, early fall of 1968, he was in that Four Falcon car when he wrote, when he heard that song for the first time. And, uh, you know, it was used in the movie Easy Rider by starring late Peter Fonda. And when the song was used in the scene when they were getting on their motorcycles and heading out on a trip, the song would ever, forever be associated with motorcycles and going on outdoor adventures. And, uh, yeah, so um, the song came out in May of 1968, and it climbed the charts. And I believe it peaked at number two in, you know, August and September of 1968 their next single hit single after that was magic carp and that was also a huge hit 
that actually made the top 10 like October, November of 1968. And then they had Rock Me, which came out like January, February of 1969. But then the hits kind of slowed down after that. But definitely if the Steppenwolf was known for one specific song, it was this one. And, uh, you know, they definitely, again, like I said before, they straddled the line of being an AM radio pop band and FM radio heavy rock band. They kind of they, they, they literally walked that very fine line. And that's what made them so good, you know, and just how loud and obnoxious and just how in your face their music was for that time. I mean, it definitely was comparable to groups like Vanilla Fudge and Iron Butterfly and Deep Purple that were out pretty much around the same time. When Bored Me While I was on the charts, you know, um, two other songs that were really heavy rock songs were um, Iron Butterfly's In a God De Vida and Deep Purple's Hush. Both songs were on the charts at the same time as Steppenwolf's Born To Be Wild. So it was really, you know, it was right place and right time for them and really... They came in at a time when music was starting to become way more heavy, way more psychedelic, and way more drug infused, and you know, and really they were they really stood out, uh, you know, for being one of the most heaviest rock bands of that time period. And man, were they awesome! So after the song became a hit, it got used in lots and lots of movies and lots of TV shows and commercials and trailers. And uh, you know, John Kay is still alive. I'm not sure if he's touring anymore. I don't think he is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's definitely some members like Goldie McJohn is uh, not alive anymore. And, uh, you know, there are some members of the group that are alive still. Some of them aren't. But anyways, to recap and everything, um, John actually sold most of the money that he made off of Born to be Wild and donated it into the Wildlife Conservation Fund of, uh, you know, of, of endangered species, specifically endangered elephants you know, elephants that were essentially, you know, born to be wild, you know, so, um, yeah, so that's basically what he did, um, you know, after the song became a hit, but yeah, so, um, that concludes part two of episode number 71 of my 60 music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some interesting, cool, and unique facts about this band, Steppenwolf, and you know them because of this song, but you learned some interesting facts about um, Born to be Wild, and you never really knew anything about that song before, um, you can email me at samltwilliaicloud.com, and you can also follow me on Instagram at iheartoldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, yeah, so uh, also a couple things that are in the description of this episode of this podcast. That way you guys can know exactly what happens with this podcast each week. One is the link to last week's song, so that way you can check it out again. And a link to the official Spotify playlist uh, for this podcast. There you'll find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, and even some of the ones I've mentioned in my interviews for the show, except for the last interview I did. But yeah, so... Um, you can listen to that and, uh, hopefully that'll give you some ideas as to which songs I should check out next. Um, and if you have any kind of suggestions for songs, I should talk about my podcast next. Um, please listen to the Spotify playlist first, and then you can email me at samlcbilliaicloud.com. You can give me some suggestions on some things that I haven't covered on my show yet. That'd be really cool. I'd appreciate that. Also, Another cool thing that's in the description of this episode of this podcast is the official Redbubble merchandise store for the show. There you'll find uh, this really cool logo that I came up with myself and I had somebody else design. And there 
you will find it attached to a bunch of different really cool merchandise items that you can buy on there online and uh if you if you choose to do so if you do i really appreciate it if you don't that's okay i at least like some feedback on you know the logo and everything and the prices of each item in the store i really would appreciate that and yeah so also please leave me a review for my show on the apple podcast app the more reviews i get on the show the more my show gets pushed into the new and noteworthy section of itunes so i definitely appreciate some more reviews i'm thankful i've I've already gotten a lot of good reviews so far on my show and yeah so also leave me a comment in the iHeartRadio page and follow my spotify playlist and also follow my spot uh, my show on spotify too i really appreciate that but yeah so anyway so i'm sam williams and uh thank you uh for joining me uh for this week's episode of my podcast and by the way i'll keep you guys updated on everything as far as the 60 show is concerned because nothing i don't really have too many updates for you as of right now but yeah so um i'm sam williams and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast the millennial throwback machine until next week police keep things groovy